Take your Bibles and, uh, if you would, open up to Revelation chapter 11. And uh, you'll remember that we are in the midst of trying to figure out what these seven trumpets are all about. We saw the seven seals, and as we got to the seventh seal, can you hear this all right? You can. You can really hear it all right. Okay. Okay. You're handling it? All right. Good. Sounds a little fuzzy or something. I've had a cold in my head for about two months, so I'm, I'm not sure I hear anything right. Uh, in Revelation, we, we saw the seven seals, and now we're seeing the seven trumpets, which are trumpets announcing God's judgment on those who are persecuting the church. And what we saw in chapters uh, 10 and 11, as we started studying it last week, was an interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. This interlude is extraordinarily important because it shows us the mission and the status of the church in our own day. And that's exactly what we need to know. That's what the hearers in the first century needed to know. That is, what's the meaning of all this chaos, all this destruction, all this hostility, all the death and the murder of God's people that we're seeing? Explain this, God. Make sense out of this for us. Give us some kind of hope and encouragement to go forward. And no doubt you at various times in your lives have felt that way. Please explain this to me. Why has this death taken place? Why has the opposition taken place in my own, in my own community or workplace? And these interludes are helping to explain that. Uh, we saw another interlude uh, earlier in, um, in Revelation. But last week, uh, you, you've got your outline, of course, from last week. And we saw that, that uh, God is giving a witness to the church. In other words, he gives us a scroll. He tells us not only to, to proclaim that scroll, but to eat it, to ingest it, to take it in. And we saw that it was very sweet when he ate the scroll, but then it was also very sour. And the ministry of the Word of God in your life is very sweet to you because you experience many benefits from the gospel, a release of guilt from your conscience. One of the key things that we experience in this life is just the burden rolling away off our back. If you... If you've been converted, uh, especially if you were converted as an adult, you may remember very distinctly that sense of that burden rolling off your back, as John Bunyan said in Pilgrim's Progress, and rolling all the way down the hill until it fell into the sepulcher. And some of, some of us have experienced that consciously as adults. If you were converted as a child, you've just known the experience over and over again when you're tempted to condemn yourself. You're tempted to take on the burden of your guilt, and then you once again refreshed your heart by the gospel and you knew your conscience was clear. Tremendous benefit of the gospel. The gospel gives us hope. The gospel gives us power in our lives and in other people's lives. The gospel gives us direction. The gospel does many things for us. And uh, we've seen those benefits that are sweet to us. But there's a bitterness as well. Because when you take up the word of God, when you stand up for Jesus Christ, as the hymn writer says, stand up, stand up for Jesus Stand up, stand up for Jesus and get your head shot off. I mean, that's about the way it goes, you know. And you, So there's a bitterness when you stand up or when you represent him or when you communicate the gospel. There's even a bitterness when you believe it. Because when your, light, your, your, your mind is enlightened by the gospel and you start seeing things differently around you, you start seeing the contrast to the will of God in your society. And it becomes, that becomes a burden to you. The prophet often spoke about this burden that he had in preaching the word. And it's true with every believer. If you have ingested the word, there is a sense in which that becomes a burden to you. So you really kind of switch burdens. And I want to say it's a good switch. 
Uh, but nonetheless, there's sweetness and bitterness in the gospel. We saw that last time in chapter 10. And, um, and we saw that uh, he was told in verse 11, uh, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And notice that what he's prophesying about, the truth of the word that he's bringing, is the truth about the nations of the world and what's going to happen to them if they don't repent. There's another burden for you, is that when you carry the word of God in your life, you're a walking announcement of the coming judgment of this world. And, and I know this as a non-Christian. I can really remember the fraternity parties, you know, in the, or in the fraternity, we had a couple of Christians, you know, or at least a couple of them that I knew about. And whenever they came around, it just made, made everybody miserable. <laughs> they just represented something the rest of us didn't want to deal with. And uh, that's the way it is with you, whether you know it or not. If you're living a consistent Christian life, uh, you represent something. And it's a nation. It's a, it's a message to the, to the many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And it's not particularly a, a, a message that makes them really happy. So we've seen then what our role is. Our role is to take in the Word of God and jest it, to represent it, and to take on the burdens, the bitterness, the sourness that comes with it. Now let's pick up with verse 11, uh, chapter 11. Because uh, John continues to see this vision, this interlude between the sixth trumpet, which is that uh, sixth trumpet represents the real uh, uh, increase of God's judgment as time draws near and as the, uh, his voice against the wickedness of this world intensifies. And we're waiting for that seventh trumpet, which will consummate all things. And this is explaining this period. And we're going to see that John describes the church in a marvelous way lets us know that we're right on the edge of history, right on the edge of this consummation getting ready to take place, and shows us the meaning of it. Let's pick up with chapter 11, verse 1. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified 
and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. Let's stop right there. And let's look at these first 14 verses. What we're doing this morning is looking at three and a half days till shouting time, brothers. Uh, something important is going to happen at the end of those three and a half days. Now, the first thing we want to notice in the first 14 verses, if I could entitle uh, just what we've read and put it in, in these uh, four words, church now endures tribulation. The church now endures tribulation. So I thought tribulation was the time that's going to come. Well, we'll get into that. Uh, but I'm suggesting to you that you're in it right now, and we're enduring it. Now, let's look at the first two verses, and we're going to see this. First of all, if, if, when you think about us in the midst of this uh, tribulating time, we must realize that we're valued. Why do I say that? Because the temple is measured. And this ought to uh, bring to mind uh, Ezekiel 40 uh, in that area there. If you've been reading the Amen readings, I won't ask for a show of hands. But in Ezekiel, at the end of his prophecy, he uh, measures this great temple that will be built in the future. And, of course, many people have speculated about whether this was Herod's temple that was being discussed, but the dimensions don't quite match, or this is going to be the temple that's rebuilt in Jerusalem. And a lot of speculation about it. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that this is exactly what John is talking about. He's referring to that passage in Ezekiel, and he's making a very, very important point. And, and we need to ask ourselves, what is this temple? Well, uh, once again, Depends upon which perspective you use. If you go back to our discussion, when we began our study of chapter 5, we looked at all four interpretive frameworks. The preterist believes that everything in Revelation has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So the preterist would say that this temple is the temple that was there in Jesus' day, and what he's talking about are the Roman soldiers who are coming to trample down the temple. Of course, they destroyed it. Uh, no stone stood upon another except in the foundation, maybe. Uh, and it was leveled. And that's what the preterist says. The futurist, uh, and I think from a show of hands a few weeks ago, most of you have a futurist background. The futurist would say, no, this is the temple that's going to be rebuilt in Israel uh, on the Mount, Temple Mount one day. And what's being foretold here is the, the events of that final tribulation, the seven years and either the three and a half years uh, at the first of that or the three and a half years at the back, depending upon your view on this. But it's, this is a story of what's going to be happening at the end of time of the tribulation after the church is raptured. We remember the futurist sees the church being raptured at the beginning of chapter 4. And then this, is a, this whole piece from chapter 4 through chapter 20 is just about the, the seven-year period of the tribulation. And this is all about the tribulation. And uh, so that's the futurist. What I'm going to suggest to you is this, that John is having a vision that is meant to encourage him and the church of his own day. They were being killed. They were being tortured. They were being tribulated. So whenever you talk about tribulation, they immediately relate to it, unlike Western Americans in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. And so we had to come up with some other scheme for uh, trying to understand what this tribulation is all about because we're so protected. This is a very unusual window of history and a very unusual place on the earth. Two million people are being persecuted this very year around the world because they're believers. We are not. So we have a hard time perhaps relating to it until you realize that when you go to work this morning, you're going to have some tribulation too. Some of it will be because 
you didn't do so hot in your work, some of it's because you're being opposed as a Christian. Sometimes it's hard to sort that out. Uh, which of it is self-induced and which of it is, is the devil at work in this world? But what we've seen is that John is being encouraged about the church. Now, why do we say that? Let's look and think about what does the temple mean? In the Old Testament, you have many things which are shadows and types which find their fulfillment in the New Testament. Example, when you find the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the bloody sacrifices, we are told that those are a shadow of the reality which is Christ in Hebrews. You know that. So Christ fulfills the bloody sacrifices of the Old Testament. So we don't have any bloody sacrifices in our church services. If you do, please talk to me afterwards. I need to to know about that church and your pastor. But we don't have bloody sacrifices. We have the Lord's Supper, which reminds us of the bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which fulfilled all those bloody sacrifices. Now, what about the temple? In the Old Testament, of course, we have a visible, physical temple where God promised His Shekinah glory and where the priests ministered the bloody sacrifices in the Old Covenant. What's the meaning of the temple in the New Covenant? Let's, let's take a peek at a few passages. And let's look at these for just a moment. In 1 Corinthians 3, uh, don't turn there, turn to Ephesians. While you're turning to Ephesians 2, let me just tell you that Paul, in 1 Corinthians 3, calls us the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the, we are the temple, he says. He's talking about the people of God. So what the temple represents in the Old Testament, it is a shadow and a type of the people of God. Just as the bloody sacrifices are a shadow and type of the sacrifice of Christ, the temple is a shadow and type of the people of God. Look, for example, in Ephesians 2. He says in verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, the fellow citizens with God's people, and members of God's household, built on the foundation. See, he's talking about a foundation here, a building. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So he's saying that God is building his temple. And that temple is made up of God's people. And in the midst of His people, He dwells just as surely as the Shekinah glory dwelt in the temple in the Old Covenant. Now, one more passage Turn toward, back toward Revelation. And a couple of books before that, you'll find uh, Peter, maybe more than a couple. First uh, Peter chapter 2. And Peter speaks of this. And, and they commonly use this type of the temple to speak of the people of God. In 1 Peter 2, verse 4, he says, As you come to Him, the living stone, we're talking about Jesus now, and He's calling Him the living stone, like the cornerstone. As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he quotes many Old Testament passages. You come to verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. If you look back at verses 4 and 5, he's clearly saying we're little stones. 
Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. We're little stones, and we're built together to make this temple. That is the apostolic view of the meaning of temple. We are to interpret the Old Testament in view of the apostles' witness. The apostles are explaining to us how to interpret the Old Testament. So you don't just go to your Old Testament and say, I'm just going to take it right as it is. I'm just going to take it just, just as though I didn't know anything about the New Testament. The New Testament says you can't do that. The very nature of having a Christian perspective is to have, a, have an apostolic perspective. So we look at what the apostles say about the Old Testament, and that is what the Old Testament really means. Now, people didn't agree with this altogether in Jesus' day. People don't agree with it altogether today. I'm just simply saying to you, this is the way the apostles were teaching us the Bible in the first century. They're saying, look, here's what it means. The bloody sacrifices are fulfilled at the crucifixion of Jesus on Calvary. The temple is the people of God. So that's the background, and John is saying the same thing here. Because, look, if you'll, if you'll turn back to Revelation chapter 11, he's saying, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. So this is a vision. It's meant to be illustrative. It's meant to teach us a deep mystery. And John was giving something by which to measure. He says, go measure that temple. What is the temple? It's the people of God. Take a measure of them and count every one of them. Now, we've seen in the previous interlude between the sixth and seventh seals that God did count them, and he used that number, 144,000, which is simply to say he knows who you are. Sometimes, you know, we, we guys feel like, we're, like, where's Waldo, you know? You're in that picture, and you know, no, how could God look down on the earth on these millions of people and ever notice you? And some of you think you're still not noticed, and you're wishing that he would notice you. You feel like you're completely forgotten. Let me tell you what Revelation 11:1 tells you. He's counted you. Not only counted you, but the hairs on your head. He knows you, and he cherishes you. So the first thing John's showing the church is that he was told to take a measure of it, to count everybody who's in the midst of the temple and the altar. Then he was told to exclude the outer court. Why? Because that is where the Gentiles are going to trample the holy city. This vision is telling us that God's people are right there in the Holy of Holies and in the holy place. The Naos uh, in, in Greek. The, the inner part of the sanctuary. The, the word that's used here. So we're in the inner sanctuary. We're counted by God. We're cherished by Him. He's got His arms around us. He's our Papa. Uh, nothing's going to happen to us. But we're going to have the hell scared out of us because we're going to look right outside in the outer courtyard and we're going to see that with these ravaging Gentiles who are trying to get their hands on us. So we are protected in the inner sanctum. We are counted. We are cherished. But there's chaos all around us. That's the vision John got. And let me tell you, everybody in Asia is going, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. It's exactly what we've got. We've got chaos here. People are coming into our churches. They're, they're persecuting us. They're ravaging us. So what, that is exactly what John is seeing. He's saying, look, I, I, this is exactly what's happening. God's behind this. There's a reason for it. Now, if we want to know what it means for the Gentiles to trample, you, you can look at Luke 21:24, And we might look there just a minute because this is the well-known Olivet Discourse. Uh, Luke has it being taught in the temple. Mark and Matthew record a similar discourse uh, being taught on Mount of Olives. And nonetheless, it is the kind of uh, judgment sermon 
that Jesus preached in the last week of his life before the crucifixion. It's one of his major teachings uh, right before he went to the cross. You know, it looked as though Jesus being stripped naked, Jesus being nailed to the cross, Jesus being spat upon, that what was happening was his messianic movement was being judged by the Roman authorities and the Jewish clergy. Now, that's what it would typically look like. I mean, that's what anybody looking onto that scene would say. Jesus got a sentence of death, and he was judged on the cross. What Jesus told us a few hours before that is, don't believe it. What's happening is God is judging the whole world. God is judging Israel. God is judging the Roman Empire. God is judging everything that opposes the Lord and his Christ. So don't believe what it's going to look like when I'm naked on the cross. And he's giving this speech about God's final judgment. If you look in uh, chapter 21, verse 24, he says they will. uh, This is verse 24. uh, And he's saying uh, that the Jews themselves will be trampled on and uh, experience great distress. He says, verse 24, they will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, those of you who are in second and were in church last Sunday know that, uh, that Jesus is talking primarily about the judgment of 70 A.D. when the Romans did destroy the physical temple. And we mentioned uh, in church that the Christians were largely, uh, in fact, Eusebius, the uh, Christian historian, says they were completely spared. No Christian died in the destruction of Jerusalem because they believed the prophecy of Jesus and they got out of there when the Roman armies first came. So they believed the prophecy of Jesus and they were spared, which, of course, is true with the final judgment. If you believe the prophecy of Jesus, you too shall be spared in the final judgment. But he's saying here that the Gentiles, the Roman armies, will come and they did devastate Jerusalem. Josephus tells us that up to a million people were murdered and up to 100,000 people were taken captive, just exactly as Jesus had predicted 40 years before it happened. So that is happening in Jerusalem, but what we're seeing is that's a picture of what's going to happen at the end. The Gentiles will trample the temple, which they did in 70 A.D., and what John is seeing is that in our own time. In the very outer courts of of the places of worship, the Gentiles continue to trample. And there will still be chaos from this world. We will still be opposed. And he's saying that's going to happen. So they'll trample on the holy city, which is the people of God, in the outer courts. We'll be protected on the inside. But as soon as we go out, it ain't safe anymore. And he says this will be for 42 months. Well, what is this 42 months? What's this all about? Look at it. Uh, in verse 2, they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Well, in case you didn't do your arithmetic, in verse 3 you have this phrase, 1260 days. That's the same thing. We're talking about the same period of time. In chapters 12 and 13, uh, you'll come up, well, let's see, for example, look at chapter 12, verse 14, and he's talking about the woman uh, who will uh, flee to the desert where she will be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Now, we'll see next week that woman is the church. And uh, I, there may not be complete agreement on that in this room. That's all right. Especially uh, those of you who are Roman Catholic, you have a different view of this. But uh, I'm, I'm going to be suggesting that the woman is the church. Why? Because same thing, time, times, and half a time. What that means is one time, two times, 
and half a time. So that's three and a half years, which is 42 months, 1260 days. So John is using a phrase for the same period of time, which I'm suggesting to you is the interim between Jesus' first advent and his second advent. This is the time of the tribulation. This is the time of being trampled on by the Gentiles. This is the time of waiting expectantly for the final deliverance of the seventh trumpet. So I, I believe clearly that's what John is saying uh, through this, this symbolic period of 42 months. And I would just say to those of you who are futurists, I know that you, you've been taught, as, as I was, that we ought to look at this as a literal period of time. And I want to suggest to you that when you look into Revelation, you see a lot of things that are not meant to be taken literally. Well, let me say it this way. They're meant to be taken literally apocalyptically. It's like a piece of literature or a movie that's highly symbolic. It's literal. You take it as it is. You interpret it in terms of its own genre. And in this genre, time and numbers can be symbols and most often are. So, And we'll see this over and over again in Revelation. But what he's saying is that... He's excluding the outer court, which is to say that on the outer court there's going to be chaos and we're going to be afflicted for 42 months. So hang on. Uh, You know, that's a significant period of time, three years, but it ain't forever. And that's the other point he's making. Now, look at the church's response during this time in verses 3 through 6. The church is going to be very vigorous. John is saying we don't cower. We're not wimps. Yes, there will be pain, there will be some agony, but we're not hopeless, we're not in despair. You know, if, if you look at the problems that have plagued this country, and you look at the problems that plague Memphis, you know, whether it's the illegitimacy rate, which is at 75%, whether it's the uh, rate of crime or the rate of high school dropouts or the rate of imprisonment or the rate of poverty, which is way up there, or the injustice that prevails between the, the white race that that makes one level and, and the black race in our city that, that, uh, that comes up to about 70% of that. Something's wrong. You want, to notice, you want to know what's really behind all that? Of course, it's spiritual at its deepest level. But psychologically, what's behind it is despair. And if you grew up, if any of you here grew up in a truly poverty-stricken home with a divided family in a neighborhood that was stricken in the same way, you know what I'm talking about that the biggest battle you had to fight was to believe that it made any difference for you to finish that uh, preparation for a test the next day, that it made any difference for you to go to high school, that it made any difference for you to try to succeed. Because down deep inside, you were taught it's useless, worthless, why even bother? And those of you who came out of that background deserve enormous respect from the rest of us because probably most of the people in this room had a mother and a father who loved them and told them that they were wonderful and that they, you know, that they would make it and kept fueling them with those messages, which, which is exactly the message we need to be sending to our own children. Sometimes you think you're doing your sons or your daughters a big favor by correcting everything they do. You really don't. The biggest favor you do for them is when you tell them you see something they do well and you feed it back to them and say, you know, honey, uh, you're a far sight better than I was when I was your age, which is, of course, in my case, clearly true, and everybody knows it. Uh, I mean, but I say it anyway because kids need to hear it even though they know it's true. Uh, they need to hear it from you. And we need to feed that into our children. And what happens in a society where the families are breaking up and when there are many evils perpetrated upon the society, kids don't hear that and they have a message of despair. 
Here is what John is saying to the church that is poverty-stricken, whose parents have been taken, who are orphaned, and who are the scum of society. He's saying to them, look, you are to go forward. And you're not to back up. You're not to retreat. You're not to listen to the messages that are around you. You're to listen to the message from God that He's the one who defines who you are. He's the one who defines the mission that you have. Now listen up, He's saying. We've got a job to do and we're going to go out and do it even if it kills us. And frankly, as we'll see, it does kill you. And we're going to do it anyway because we have a hope that goes beyond even this life. This message, brothers, is powerful. And there is nothing else that can supplant it. Uh, just uh, the other day we had... We had the, the governor and uh, Congressman Ford in town, and they were talking about uh, the health care crisis, which is a huge crisis for our state. And uh, the room was full of clergy uh, because they, they convened clergy to do this. You may have seen the paper. And um, the one thing I wanted to say was on the government side, if you want to partner with faith-based organizations, that can be a very good thing to do. We need to think about how the government and the church can work together on some things. There's no reason why we shouldn't try. But I said, please, Governor Bredesen, uh, do not allow the policies for these programs to denude the power of the churches and the organizations that are faith-based who do them in the first place. In other words, do not insist that they can't evangelize. Why do you think they're so effective? Why do you think that prison fellowship has such a low recidivism rate? Because of the power of the gospel. So if you're going to partner, fine. But don't take away, don't cut our hair off like Samson. Give us our strength. So you've got to find ways to partner where gospel-believing people can continue to proclaim the power of God that transforms lives. And no matter what you do and who you partner with, partner with anybody who will partner with you. As one of my old friends used to say, he used to raise a lot of money for his college. He said, the only problem with tainted money, they're tainted enough of it. Uh, so you can... You can take money from any, you can take someone who's been to Las Vegas and is feeling guilty about their million dollar winnings and wants to give you $100,000 for a good program. Take it and use it. Uh, that'll sanctify some of his misbehavior. So, whatever you do, take it, but, but listen, don't take it and play by somebody else's rules. Don't take it and eliminate the gospel. As soon as you eliminate the gospel, you've eliminated your purpose for living. Anybody can go out and help people, and a lot of people do. But people who help in the name of Jesus Christ are people who care about the eternal welfare of people. For us to trade in our eternal business for temporary relief is a horrible substitute. We have abandoned the gospel when we do that. For us to say that we just need to join hands with everybody and just help people and don't preach the gospel because you know that could offend some people, you have just sold out. Now, I'm not saying that we, if you're a public school teacher, that you believe that you have to evangelize in the public schools. I don't believe that. If you're a public school teacher, you just simply tell the truth. And you won't tell the truth very long without telling truth that's specific to Christianity. It won't happen. And you won't be a public school teacher long without getting into trouble every once in a while. And I expect you to defend yourself. How can anyone tell the truth and not tell the whole truth when it's appropriate? The secularist does it, and they get along fine in the public schools. Why can't the Christian? And it may mean that you get fired. Fine, get fired. So I'm not saying to go aggravate people. I'm not saying use government money to proclaim the gospel. That's not just either. So we do not take government funds 
to evangelize. But we can take government funds to do what they have an interest in and do it well, and then we can come alongside with our ministries and proclaim the gospel. Why? Because the church is vigorously involved in saving souls for eternity. Why are we gathered here this morning? To be sure that we're all getting ready for the last day, basically, and helping other people to do the same. So we're to be vigorous. And we have a power to witness. If you look in verses 3 and 4, he says, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for this entire time. Yes, they'll be clothed in sackcloth. They may not look pretty, and they may be abused. They may be in prison, but they're not going to stop preaching. They're not going to stop talking about Christ. They're not going to stop standing up for the truth. That's what Jesus says. I want to give them power. And he said to these disciples, remember Acts chapter 1, 8? He said, now you go on up there and wait in that upper room, boys. I'm coming later. And you will receive power to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in Judea, and all Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He said, I'll give you my power to do that. And you saw what happened a few days later when Pentecost took place. We got power. And we couldn't have done this without it because these are unschooled, ordinary fishermen, untrained. They didn't have leadership training courses except to walk with Jesus for three years. Then they had the power of the Spirit who enabled them to go and be witnesses. That's exactly what the church is to do in our sackcloth, no matter what they do to us. They can put chains on our body. They cannot put chains on the gospel, says the Apostle Paul. That's our calling. Now, who are these two witnesses? One of you was asking me that. We're going to have the final answer. Who are the two witnesses? All I can say is everybody debates this. And, of course, it depends on your perspective, doesn't it? Whether you're a preterist or a futurist. uh, uh, There are not too many historicists in here. uh, Or an idealist. But he says this, doesn't he? That it's two olive trees and two lampstands. What in the world is that all about? Well, you can look at Zechariah 4, and you'll find out about the olive trees and the lampstand. And then you remember Revelation chapter 1, we get the lampstand. What's the lampstand in Revelation chapter 1? It's the seven churches. You know, the lampstand has seven uh, arms to it. They have the seven churches. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The light of God is on the church. So... Uh, this may disappoint you. It seems really simple to me. The two witnesses are us guys. And whether it's two olive trees or two lampstands, he's talking about the church. And we don't know exactly what he means by these two witnesses, although we'll come back to it in a moment. He refers to two figures in the Old Testament that could symbolically represent the church in this case. But he says there's going to be power to devour. Look at this in verse 5. He says that, you know, they may be eating you up, But in verse 5, he says, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. There's fire in the gospel. Uh, He says, and he's really quoting Jeremiah chapter 5 here. When God says to Jeremiah, I'm going to put fire in you. And so all that John is seeing is that the church is going to have that same fire, prophetic fire. Everybody watch out. When the church speaks the truth, when you go out of here, you represent the truth, you speak the truth, it is like fire, and it eats people up. And they feel it. And so even though outwardly you may be wasting away, inwardly you're being renewed day by day, as the Apostle Paul says. And you have tremendous spiritual power. Uh, It was just the other day someone was talking about the state versus the church, and they were saying, you know, 
you guys in the church, of course, you don't have the same power because you can't tax people or throw people into jail and that kind of stuff. I was going, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. we got more power. We have more power. It's not convincing to everyone. And it doesn't always assert itself in the moment, but it's infinitely greater than the power of the state. The state only has a temporary, almost symbolic power of the power that really is in God's hands. They're God's ministers, governors, presidents, legislators. God's ministers. They're given the power of the sword. It's temporary, and it's only symbolic of the ultimate power of God, which you and I proclaim as his people. Then it has power to curse in verse 6. You see this. This is where we get uh, two representatives from the Old Testament. These men have power to shut up the sky. What is that? That's a curse from God. Now, who's he talking about? Elijah. You have power, just like Elijah, who said to Ahab, that wicked ruler in Israel, he said, there will not be rain or dew until I speak. Woo! <laughs> so when they had this huge drought and the people were economically falling to pieces, uh, Ahab knew who to be angry at. And he went everywhere looking for Ahab. I mean, for Elijah, trying to kill him. And Elijah was hiding until the moment that he came out, made himself known. And uh, so Ahab sees him and says, There you are, Elijah, you troubler of Israel. You're all, you're, it's all your fault, Elijah. It's you right-wing fundamentalists. It's you Christians who are making this place miserable. It's all your fault. You're the troubler of this country. That's what he was saying to him. So you troubler of Israel. And, and then Elijah says, you know, trouble's not with me, king. It's with you. Uh, why don't you, and we'll just see who the real God is. You've been worshiping some other gods. We'll just see what the real problem is. Let's have a little ceremony and find out who the real God is. You get your 450 prophets of Baal, your 400 prophets of Asherah, 950 preachers. And you bring them here, and they can represent their God, and I'll represent Jehovah. We'll see which one's the real God. So they all come out. And Elijah says, here's the rules of the road. Everybody prepare a sacrifice. And the one, the God who answers by fire, can we all agree here before we do this, the one who answers by fire, that's the real God. Now, if I were a deacon in that church, I'd be saying, Elijah, let's cool it just a little bit. Uh, we got 950 of these people here, and uh, they have a kerosene. And, uh, and you know, God, uh, he, he, uh, I'm not sure he'll, he'll want to do this, uh, Elijah. We could be in some real deep weeds here. But Elijah says, prepare your sacrifice. So he says, you guys go first. If your God answers by fire, you win. So they set up this sacrifice and they dance around and they shout and sing and call on Baal. And Elijah is not satisfied to see them be unsuccessful. No, not Elijah. He has to make some wise remarks. He says, well, maybe God can't hear you. Maybe you need to shout a little louder. I'd be saying, Elijah, why don't you just calm it down just a little bit? These boys are getting a little bit angry here. Why don't you just shout a little louder so they shout louder? And then he, he has some more wise remarks. He says, maybe your God is deep in thought. Maybe he's on a business trip. And literally in the Hebrew it says, maybe he went behind the tree and took a whiz. <laughs> That's what he's saying to these people, this other religion. I mean, can you believe this? I mean, we, don't we believe in the equality of all religions, being mutually respectful and all the rest? Elijah is taking them on because they have taken the people astray. He's making fun of them. Maybe your God is going to the bathroom. 
And so they start cutting themselves, making sacrifices out of themselves. They work themselves into real frenzy. And we're told, not a word. Complete silence from that God. And Elijah says, step aside. And Elijah builds, rebuilds the altar, puts 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He cuts up the sacrifice and puts it on there decently and in order, just like a Presbyterian, of course. And then he says, boys, I want you to take four jugs and pour water on that sacrifice. Elijah, I don't know if I'd do that. Uh, this is going to be hard enough. <laughs> Aren't you being a little bit presumptuous with the water thing? I think I'd you know, cool it. Elijah probably heard comments like that from, from some people standing around. He said, no, do it again. Four more jugs. He got through with that. He said, do it again. I want something to be really clear here. This is not kerosene. This is not luck. I want people to see the power of Jehovah. So he soaked that thing until the trench around it was full and overflowing with water. And then he said, God, show these people that Jehovah is the real God. Show them so that they will turn around and worship you. And fire came down from heaven, consumed that sacrifice, consumed the wood, consumed the stones and the soil and all the water. People had a brief comment to make. (laughs) Jehovah, He is God. Jehovah, He is God. Now that is what John is hearing God say to the church. You've got fire. It may kill you. But you've got a message to proclaim, and it's powerful. And this is not a time to be a wimp, not a time to be a victim, not a time to complain about your circumstances. It's a time to get up in the midst of these 42 months and make some noise to heaven. Call upon God and trust Him to do what He promises. And he says, I will be with you to the end of the ages. He says, I will fill you with my spirit. And he said, I will attend that word so that it will not be null and void. And you can know that when you speak for me and live for me, you will make a difference. That's Elijah. And then he refers to Moses. You can see in here he talks about the the water turning to blood. He's referring to Moses as a witness. You remember what he did? The power of God's word and judgment against Egypt. And so... Uh, We have power to devour, power to witness, power to devour, and power to curse. Then he says in verses 7 through 10, the church is vulnerable. He says, okay, look, uh, the beast is going to come up and attack you, overpower you, and kill you. What? Verse 7 is shocking. Talking about all this power, fireworks, God proving himself. Here's the mistake you made. You thought that God was going to prove that you're powerful. That he was going to vindicate you before the world and make you stand out and protect your physical body. No, he's going to vindicate himself and it will cost you your life. So John is saying, this is in the plan, boys. So don't lose heart when you're being wiped out. Don't lose heart when you're in prison. Don't lose heart when you're persecuted. This is part of the plan. As John, or rather as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we're sheep fattened for the slaughter. Oh, thanks a lot, God. But that's the nature of the times of the 42 months. We're being trampled on by the Gentiles. 
So what happens if you get trampled on? What happens in Jesus' time when the Gentiles got the upper hand? He ends up on a cross dead. Do we think we're going to live a different life? No, we're in those 42 months. We're facing the tribulation just as Jesus did. And his soul was in great distress in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sometimes yours is too. But you go forward and triumphantly make the sacrifice because you know something about the future. That's exactly the reason Jesus did it, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross and scorned its shame. He scorned the shame of the cross because of the hope and the joy set before him. Satan will attack and overpower. Everybody's going to ignore us. They won't even bury our bodies. If the world takes over, we'll be like the guys hanging on the bridge in Fallujah. Everybody will be dancing around. They'll gloat and celebrate. It'll be like Christmas. Let's exchange gifts on the day that Wilson was hung from the ridge. Well, let's, let's, let's really make a big one out of this one. Man, that was great. And you know how inside your heart was boiling with rage when we saw our young men giving their lives for, so that other people could have freedom and are hanging with charred bodies off a bridge. I have to say that I was very glad the day we went into Fallujah straighten a few things out. You can't help but feel that way. I'm not saying it was righteous. I'm not confusing this with the gospel. I'm just saying that's the way I was. I'm Wilson, okay? I got problems. Vengeance may be one of them. But there's going to be a day, and there has been a day for 2,000 years, and people have been hanging off bridges with charred bodies. They're called Christians. We were used to ignite the fires in the arena so that people could enjoy the fights. We just burned Christians, make torches out of them. That's what happened under Nero. So this is, not, this is nothing that it wasn't contemporary, uh, or that was a few years, a few decades before this writing. But it was, there was persecution occurring again. Same kind of things were happening. So believe me, they need to know this, that this is all in God's plan, that we're, we're to be vulnerable. That's part of what He's doing. Why? Verse 11 and 12, the church is going to be victorious. And you'll notice that our strugglings are for three and a half days. Verse 11, after the three and a half days. We were talking about three and a half years. Three and a half days will be very intensive for a short time. And you see by the comparison what he's doing. Go through the valley because you are going to be victorious. How? You're going to be resurrected. The breath of life from God will come and you'll stand on your feet and everybody will be terror struck at the resurrection. (laughs) You will be resurrected. No matter what happens to that old body of yours, no matter what people do to you, you're coming back whole. You're going to be made whole in this whole arrangement. So, yes, you're vulnerable. You're supposed to be vigorous. It'll cost you your life. And it'll look like you're losing the battle. It'll look like you're just going to be hung up as a charred body in Fallujah and everybody's going to dance around your body. But wait for three and a half days. Jesus had to wait three days. You wait three and a half. And look what's going to happen. You're going to be raised up to the amazement of all who see it. And then there's going to be a voice from heaven that says, Come over here. won't be like that. Come up here. More like that. And what will happen? You'll go up in a cloud, just like Jesus who went up in a cloud. And the enemies will look on and go, man, look at that. (laughs) Man, that's amazing. And they'll be terror struck that the very ones whom they disagreed with and said were a bunch of right-wingers, a bunch of fundamentalists, a bunch of people who are just troublers in Israel, they're the ones who will be gloriously raised at the end. And so the church will be vindicated. You will not be vindicated now. You have to postpone your vindication until the last day. 
and you'll see that at that time a tenth of the city collapses, 7,000 people are killed. And we won't have time to go into the meaning of those symbols, but they're very meaningful. He's usually a tenth of the church is preserved, and in Elijah's day there were 7,000 faithful, remember? He was told there were 7,000 faithful. John is seeing this in reverse. A tenth of the world is destroyed, and 7,000 people are killed at the judgment of God. So your resurrection and God's final judgment are getting ready to take place at the same time. That leads us to the last seventh trumpet. Verse 15, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And then the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have, and you notice he doesn't say the one who will, who, who is to come. The reason he doesn't say that, because the is to come has come. God is now the God of the present, and the future has come into the present. So the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants the prophets and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within His temple was seen the ark of His covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Here's what's being said. The church that began in tribulation will end in celebration. Loud voices will worship. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Does it sound familiar? When Handel was writing Messiah, this is the, the, the real, the real uh, crescendo, the real climax of of Messiah and Handel here's this chapter and when all the kingdoms of this world are handed over to him to reign and the elders are worshipping so you have the loud voices from heaven worship him the elders worship him and what do they do they thank him for his rule why because of his judgments he will reward the righteous All those guys who look so weak, so battered, so marginalized, those who are persecuted, they'll be brought to the center of the universe and they will be glorified like their Savior Jesus Christ. And all heaven will rejoice at the glory that's been given to them. There's coming a day of great reward and I'm quite convinced you and I cannot imagine the depth nor the height of it. It is going to be absolutely magnificent and it will cause all the elders who went before us to fall down on their faces before God when they look at the stark contrast between what you were in this life and what you are in that life, and they're absolutely awestruck at the power of God and what He does for His beloved. And then He will destroy the destroyers. There will be absolute, ultimate justice. And those who have put their trust in Christ will be vindicated. And those who have not will pay for their sins since they did not allow Him to pay for them. And then we see that all heaven breaks loose. Thunder and earthquakes and noises and all heaven cuts loose with worship. That's what's going to happen in chapter 11. Last night, uh, you probably saw the, the uh, inauguration, which, I'm sorry, not the inauguration, but the State of the Union. And uh, as State of the Union dresses go, I personally thought it was one of the best ones I'd heard. He, I think he got a speechwriter who knows how to write for a Texan, uh, which is good. But uh, undoubtedly, you would agree with me that the, uh, the height of the evening was when a woman named Safiya Taleb al-Suhail, who's the leader of the Iraqi Women's Political Council, was seated up next to Laura. And she was introduced. And she had lost a family member 
under Saddam. And then she had come out to lead the voters' movement among the women. And she was there to be honored. And she was, as all the congressmen, senators, and everyone there applauded. Then in just a few moments, right behind her, we introduced Janet and Bill Norwood from Pflugerville, Texas. And uh, they are the parents of a Marine sergeant named Byron Norwood who was getting ready to go to Iraq. And his mama said, I want you to stay right here so I can take care of you. And he, he said, no, Mom, now it's time for me to go take care of you. He went to Iraq, and in the battle in Fallujah, he lost his life. And when they were introduced, the height of that evening, and if you haven't seen it, get the tape. Don't just read the account in the newspaper. Get the tape. There's a picture there that will endure in my mind, probably in yours, as long as I live. And that was uh, the, the woman from Iraq, Safiya Taleb al-Sahel embracing Janet Norwood and just hanging on to her. Because Bill and Janet had let their son go to fight a foreign battle, to take on a battle that some people would even say, you know, it wasn't even his to fight. But he went and took on that battle so that that woman and her family and all the people who rocked could be free. Such a noble thing. And one woman, one mother, thanking another mother for giving her child so they might have freedom. It's one of the most dramatic moments I think I've ever seen in the halls of Congress. But I couldn't help but think, gentlemen, that that's exactly what God did for me. God who loves His Son every bit as much as Janet Norwood loved Byron. And even more, because His Son was perfect. And He came to an alien place And I imagine the angel said, the Son of God, there's no reason for you to go there. Why don't you just judge that place? They're in rebellion against you. And all you have to do is say the word and we'll go fight the battle for you and clean that place up and destroy it. There's no reason for you to go down there and run the risk of losing your life. And Jesus said, no, I'm going. The Father is sending me. And He came and He laid down His life for me. For me. So I realized that no matter what this woman in Iraq owed this woman in America, no matter what the nation of Iraq owes America, it's nothing compared to what I owe God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. For coming to the place in my life, I was not the one being victimized. I was the one victimizing others. I was the insurgent. I was the terrorist. And he didn't just die to eliminate me. He died to save me. And that's what I owe Him. That's what you owe Him if you've received Him as Savior. So receive from Him this moment in your history, the 42 months that you've got. And remember, yes, it's a time for us to be vulnerable. But it's also a time for us to be vigorous because this time coming will be vindicated when Jesus has taken the kingdoms of this world and taken them for His own. He shall be praised forever and ever and ever. Amen. God, we thank You for this great revelation of history and its meaning and of the meaning of our lives. We pray that You'll help us to live for what's really important today. No matter how small the tasks are that are set before us, behind those small tasks 
is an infinitely glorious God who is calling us to be faithful men vigorously in this world. Help us so to do. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.